Welcome to Stitch This with Corey Bradford, a podcast from Lost Debate. I'm Corey Bradford, also known as at This Is Corey on TikTok, and this is actually a podcast all about TikTok and the most interesting creators on there. And as an African-American creator on TikTok, I can't help but notice sometimes that the platform treats Black creators just a little bit differently than everyone else. Many Black and people of color creators that I have spoken to uh, have talked to me at length about having their content shadow banned, suppressed, and especially if that content is specifically about racism and discrimination. So if you are looking for a good source on the internet that dives into all of the intricacies involving race in America, racism and discrimination, and how it still really affects us all today, then you are in luck because there is a TikTok for that. And it is from my guest today. She is an equity and justice educator who has gone viral a few times on TikTok for her videos that touch on subjects such as economic justice, voting rights, and the role that racism still strongly plays in everyday American life. My student comes up to me and says, I have a question. It's about race. Is that okay? I know it's not your job to educate me. I just, I figured I would ask. And she and I have a relationship and that it is okay to ask me. And I appreciate her asking if it was okay. And her question was, am I allowed to tell black women that I like their hair? I'm so excited to speak with her. Please give a warm welcome to Victoria Alexander. Over 370,000 followers on TikTok. Victoria, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Corey. Thanks. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm really excited to talk to you because you do something really interesting on TikTok. And it's something that we do really well here at this company as well. And you do it almost better than us. And that's you really combine a sense of humor with like topics that are really serious. And I just wanted to start off by kind of like asking you, like, what is your process for doing that? Because you're talking about things like racism, discrimination, really heavy topics that are really big to talk about today because of how prevalent all that stuff is in our politics and in our media. And you bring a sort of levity to it that I don't see a lot of other TikTok creators doing. So what inspires you the most to be able to do that the way you do it? Um, so I think part of what informs my practice in that way is that I work professionally as a student affairs practitioner at a university. So I work with college students. And so I think in K through 12, we often do a lot of coddling around things like racism and sexism and, and heterosexism and those pieces. And so when they get to college, we just kind of expect that they know all that stuff and they're not going to mess it up. But we've not really talked to them about it, maybe in the ways that we should. And so then when they get here, if I approach them in a way that said, like, you should already know this, what's wrong with you? They would resist and they, they would never hear what I have to say. But if I approach this from a like, yeah, you just came out of high school, like you just entered your adulthood and maybe no one's ever taught you this before. And that's not your fault. Like you came from whatever community you came from and now you're here and here's how we don't mess that up, which has been really helpful, right? Because I know that there was a lot that I didn't know when I was a freshman in college. There was a lot that I had internalized over my 18 years of life that I had to unlearn. And so I try, as long as somebody is acting in good faith, I try to understand their point of view, try to communicate mine. But I want to be clear that my audience is typically people who are already very committed to social and racial justice, people who are not yet aware that they've been resistant to it. But it's not really my audience to get people who like hate Black people to love us. Like, I just don't care about giving <laughs> them any of my energy. Yes, absolutely. And same here, uh, because it's just like a waste of time. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your background, because you just mentioned a little bit about, you know, your job uh, at the college you are. And I know you're also a PhD student. And I remember you doing a video about your PhD program, and it's like really complex. Uh, and so can you give us a little background 
background on like, you know, your PhD program and just like, you know, your career and everything like that? Sure. I started undergrad at Northeastern University, which is a small private in Boston. And Boston is known for being incredibly self-segregated. And I say self because it's a modern kind of choice, but it's also informed by generations of not chosen segregation and enforced through the state and all those pieces. But Northeastern is situated right in between a place called Roxbury, which is predominantly people of color, mostly Black and Latina people, and Back Bay, which is mostly like finance bros. Um, And so there's kind of tension there because when you walk across campus, it looks incredibly different on different sides. And Northeastern is a PWI. It's a predominantly white institution, but it prides itself on its diversity. So when I went there, I was thinking, I'm from a diverse place. This is going to feel like home. Naive. (laughs) Um, So then I go to college and I'm thinking, you know, I'm hearing a lot of people speak languages I've never heard people speak. I'm seeing a lot more Asian people than I've ever been exposed to. And that's really cool. But there aren't many Black people here. And so then, of course, I look it up and there's about 4% of the population is Black, which is incredibly small. And then in 2014, Black Lives Matter happened. And so I was I was talking and learning more about racism and police violence and mass incarceration. And I was obviously really impacted by Black Lives Matter being a Black person. And talking with my peers about it, it just became abundantly clear that they had no toolkit to be able to have those conversations. And they were more committed to seeming not racist or seeming like race neutral than they were committing to not being racist. And so they just wouldn't talk about it at all. And so I really leaned on my team because I was an athlete and most of my teammates were Black. And I really leaned on our BSU, our Black Student Union. And I remember talking with my advisors and asking, like, how do I do what you do? Like, how do I become you so that I can be you for me's in the future? And they said, well, you got to go get your master's. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I worked for my national sorority for a year and I traveled the country visiting schools. And so I studied for oh, my awesome. degree. It was cool. It was a cool experience. Lived out of a suitcase for a year. <laughs> Took my GRE, applied to master's programs, ended up at the University of Southern California, ended up there focused on college access for low-income Black students. I wrote my master's thesis on multiracial college students. Part of my population was Black-white, part of my population was white-Asian, and learning about the differences in racialization among racial groups. And then I decided, I love research. I'm going to get a PhD. And I study higher education and student affairs, so college learning. And then my kind of research focus is on racial identity, anti-racism, and critical consciousness building education, and Black college student support at PWIs. That's really interesting. And what's so interesting about that is that you've had this experience of learning this in three very different parts of the country. Did you see a significant difference, like, say, in Boston versus California between like how race was perceived? Yes. And I wonder sometimes, I wonder often if that's just because the people I was surrounded with were different, like the people I chose to put myself around. So in undergrad, I think I was just so focused on making friends and being liked that I didn't bring up difficult conversations as frequently as I did as a master's student. And so my undergraduate kind of friend group were mostly white people outside of my track team, which was mostly black people. And then when I went to USC, my friend group was mostly people of color by nature of me having have different priorities and by nature of my program being more racially diverse. The USC is predominantly white and not very black at all. But my program 
um, because we're a racial justice focused program is mostly people of color. And then here, I mean, I'm a PhD student. I don't have very many friends. I don't really go anywhere. <laughs> the videos that you do are really in line with your educational background and what you do for a living. Does that get stressful having to basically pretty much like eat, live and breathe racial justice pretty much 24 seven? So I think kind of my whole philosophy, though, on why I've kind of taken my social media presence into like a public academic lens, I think has been because I didn't have access to this kind of education until late in my undergrad because I chose it or my master's because I chose it. And I don't think that it should take any level of formal education at the college level and especially not hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt to have access to this kind of material, to get to see yourself reflected. And so by putting it on social media, to me, and I hope to other people, it feels like they can have a bit of that without having to pay for it, without having to go to school, without having to like read all these books, that I can use the privilege I've had to be able to access these institutions and spaces and syllabi to provide that to them. I think some of the most rewarding experiences have been, one, when white people say things like, I didn't really know that, but I had a feeling, and now I've been able to talk with my racist uncle about it, and like I think I'm getting through to him or something. But my favorite thing is when people of color reach out and they say things like, I've been leaning on my light-skinnedness or my middle-classness or my maleness to kind of take me away from my blackness. And in hearing you talk about it and in having access to the things that you're reading and learning, I'm realizing that I don't need to do that. It's not beneficial for me to do that. And if I love myself more fully and stand up when people try to put me down, that's a much more healing process for me. And I love that you just talked about the fact that you're giving people access to material like that's at this collegiate level that they may not be able to access because, you know, economically they can't afford to go to colleges. And, and it's really high level stuff. Like I was watching some of your videos earlier today and I was just like, wow, like it really felt like I was in like a college lecture because you go really deep. I saw the one that uh, we were talking about, the generational locus of multiraciality. Zoe Kravitz's generational locus of multiraciality is two generations and that both of her parents are black. They're both also multiracial. So Zoe has two non-black grandparents and two black grandparents. I was blown away because like I've done like some genealogy research in my own family and I found out. So my dad's mom, her dad was uh, biracial. And nobody in our family even knew that. And so I, I did some more research about it. And so like watching that video, it was just incredible the way you broke it down and the way you described it. So let's talk a little bit about how you got started on TikTok. Like what inspired you to just start your page in the first place? In summer 2020, after George Floyd had been murdered, I have been doing racial justice work professionally for a couple of years at that point. And so I would talk about it on social media sometimes, but primarily it lived in my research and my work. When George Ford was murdered and when Black Lives Matter had a resurgence, right, it already existed. I had a lot of peers from undergrad, again, mostly white people, reaching out and saying, I had no idea that racism was this bad. Like, how could I not have noticed? And I'm like, I don't know how you didn't notice, to be honest. <laughs> but here we are. Um, and so I was getting a lot of text messages and I couldn't, I was getting overwhelmed by trying to like process my emotions and respond to these people. And I was thinking to myself, you know, it's not my responsibility as a Black person to educate other people on race and racism. 
but I also do this for a living. So like, they're not just asking me because I'm black, although I'm sure that has something to do with it. They're asking me for my like professional expertise. So I reached out to the people that were asking and I'm like, Hey, I'm getting a lot of text messages just like this. I'm going to make you a Google doc, like a syllabus because I love education. And if what you're looking for isn't in there, Google it. Um, so I created a syllabus and I called it the anti-racist resource guide and I sent it to my friends and I published it on Instagram. And I think at that point on Instagram, I had maybe like 2000 followers, like a very modest amount. And I thought the same 300 people, whoever actually like my stuff would like it and maybe share it with their friends. And like, that would be great. I could help the people in my circle understand race and racism better. And then I have a little bit of a hyperfixation issue. And so I just worked on that all night, didn't sleep, and then posted it in the morning and took a nap. And my mom calls me around like noon and is like, why are you sleeping? And I'm like, because I was doing this thing. And she's like, um, what does it mean when there's a K on your followers? And I was like, it means a thousand. Why? And she's like, well, you have 11,000 on, on Twitter and like 20,000 on Instagram. And I like wow. shoot out of bed. Like, what are you talking about? And a lot of people liked my Google Doc so much that it kept crashing. <laughs> so I then took it from the Google Doc and I made it like this makeshift website because I'm not a UX designer. And then people started accessing that more. And then one of my friends reached out and said, hey, I am a UX designer. Like, can I do this for you? And then made me the, my website that exists now, antiracistguide.org. But so all of that kind of started Instagram and a little bit on Twitter. I posted like an anti-racist reading list on Twitter. And so then the organization I work with was like, don't get on TikTok. It's not professional. <laughs> the audience is too young. And I was like, no. Nope. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I started to take the content that I was writing in my infographics and just saying it on TikTok. And that really took off. And I think TikTok, TikTok is a more quickly growing platform than Instagram is. And so more people were seeing it and engaging with it. And so my little like, intrinsic motivator was like, oh, this feels nice. Like, this is cool. And so I just kind of kept going with it. Isn't it odd that when you tell people, oh, you know, I want to put this content on TikTok too, just to broaden the audience. The first thing you hear from a lot of professionals is like, don't do that. Isn't that really interesting? Because I think people have this warped perception of what TikTok is, and they don't really understand the potential to put such like specific and like really deep subject matter and content on there. And that you can just like get lost on there, like in all the content. Like I, I think I was just strolling one day and like I saw your your content and I was like, this is really interesting. And I looked more into it. And and you can do that in a way on TikTok that I feel like you really can't do on like Instagram. Kind of can do it like that on Twitter, but but not really like that on Instagram. I think it depends on your demographic too. Like some of my friends are not on TikTok and so yeah. they don't see that. And then some of my friends live for TikTok and I see it all the time. So it just kind of depends. But I also think that for me personally, my TikTok has never really been incredibly personal. Like it, it is because it's me, but I mostly post educational content. And so my audience is a bit different. I also have a sense that my audience on Instagram is predominantly white people that felt things around the George Floyd murder. Whereas I, I feel like TikTok, my audience is mostly other people of color. And I'm sure there's lots of white people there, too. It sounds like, you know, with Instagram, you almost like blew up overnight just with that Google Doc. With TikTok, how long did it take for you to build a significant audience on there? I think I started on TikTok in maybe like September. And I think I started being more consistent in my posting um, right before the winter. But, you know, I watched the TikToks of like, how to blow up on TikTok, like how to game the algorithm. <laughs> and it was like, post three times a day. So I was like, all right, I'll do like one 
informational, like intense post a day and then two like trending video sounds or like just thoughts like an Instagram story. But I didn't have a very close eye on my trajectory. I just kind of thought, you know, as long as people are engaging, it's good. Uh, And I try my best to not follow incendiary trending topics that are not fully developed yet. And so I don't want to like give my opinion and then be wrong. And before I post anything, I have an entire script with citations and references in case people ask because something about me is that I don't take criticism incredibly well. So I'm like, it has to be perfect, at least in content, right? Like I only use Mm -hmm. TikTok to edit. So it's not like a super cool production, but my content is very important to me. When you're doing one of those videos, like how long do you think it takes you on average to produce something like that? If it's a topic that I already know really well and that I know exactly where the resources are that I want to cite, maybe like an hour. If it's a topic that I don't know super well and I want to make sure I get it right, right, like four hours. And that's like researching, writing the script, shooting, editing. So it takes a while. But also historically on my TikTok, the videos that take me like four hours don't do that well. Like nobody cares. (laughs) And then the videos that took me like 30 seconds get like 4 million or like I'll flick a marker on a windowsill and that's like 4 million. And I'm like, I didn't even try. But Providing the content to the people who do enjoy it is most important to me. And TikTok has also kind of helped me in my program because it helps me better remember the things that I'm learning when I'm able to write about it and then speak about it and then hear myself speak about it. I like retain it much better. So it's also beneficial for me. Do you remember your first video that just got an insane amount of views that went viral? I mean, like, how did you feel when you just first saw that? I think I've had a few hit over a million, but one that hit a million pretty quickly that was really surprising was I just did kind of like a voiceover about minimum wage and how minimum wage is like $7. I think it's like $7.25 maybe. $7.25, yeah. And how that's like abysmally low, like cruel low. And it's just me like having a fake conversation, like sitting on the floor of my room, just because I think it's an interesting kind of like circular conversation of like, Mm -hmm. why is minimum wage so low? But it, it got a lot of views. It got a lot of engagement. And to the point where it got more than the original creator of the sound. We can't raise the minimum wage. Why? Because small businesses wouldn't be able to afford it. Why? And then I was like, oh, now I feel oh, wow. bad like that. Now I feel <laughs> rude. But I just remember like getting all of these followers at once and being like, what are you here for? And then seeing <laughs> that and being like, all of the work that I put into my stuff and you're here to see me speak over a, a sound. So let's talk a little bit about your videos and like specific content. So you do focus mostly on race and racism in general. Uh, I saw an interesting one that you did where you were talking about colorism and this concept. Someone was talking about like reverse colorism and like, you know, people use that term reverse racism, which I, I hate. And uh, and obviously you have you have talked a little bit about why that term makes no sense and, and doesn't exist. Uh, can you speak on that a little bit? Because I feel like with your page, do you get a lot of like white people messaging you and saying, well, black people can be racist too. And like, why do you only focus on this? Like, do you, and then you have to kind of like explain to them, well, based off the context of what racism is in this country, no, like that's not how this works. And so do you feel like you find yourself having to do videos like that where you're having to like almost explain to people like why you even have to make these videos in the first place? Or do you feel like your audience kind of gets it? Like what is the kind of responses that you get? I feel like my audience pretty much gets it. Anybody who ever says that kind of stuff, I'll like go to their profile if I see it and they don't follow me. So I'm like, okay, you're clearly just here because you comment on videos like this. So your algorithm keeps pushing them to you so that you can complain some more, but whatever. 
but I think I've made some videos on reverse racism. Just like there is no such thing as reverse racism, there is no such thing as reverse colorism either. Because like the fact that we call it reverse racism signifies that it's not racism. Otherwise, you would just call it racism. Exactly. Um, but they kind of they've caught on to that and have stopped calling it that. Not all of them. I don't want to use this like amorphous. It's <laughs> racist white people. Yeah. Be very particular. That it's not. Yeah. Yeah. And even <laughs> some of them would would not identify themselves as racist. And so I will typically when I'm talking about the concept of reverse racism or racism against white people say like racism is structural. And then some people who have done a little bit of learning might say like, no, systemic racism or structural racism is structural, but individual racism is just meanness between people. And then I'll say like, okay, what did we learn in like the third grade? And, we, and I don't mean this to be pejorative. I just mean it to like elicit yeah. a memory of like, what did we learn in like third grade when we were learning about defining words? And usually people won't answer me. So I'll just say, we learned that you can't use the word in the definition. And if the word has the root word in it, the meaning of the root word remains the same. So if racism is systemic, racism is a system of power based on race within the context of the US, that system of power has historically always been white supremacy, then individual racism still has to have that initial definition within it. It is not racism if it is not rooted in white supremacy, particularly white supremacy coupled with anti-indigeneity and anti-blackness. But then people will just say, well, people, I think the pendulum has swung too far in the other direction. I think it's hard to be a white person now. And I'll typically say, where are you underrepresented? Like, where are you feeling marginalized? Is it just interpersonal relationships where people are calling you names or saying that your food doesn't taste good? Or are they saying you don't deserve rights? You don't deserve to live. You don't deserve to procreate. You don't deserve to have quality education. You don't deserve clean water. You don't deserve housing. I should be able to kill you and get away with it. Are people saying that to you? And usually they're like, no, that's horrible. And I'm like, fascinating. And then on the the colorism aspect, I feel like as a person who looks how I look, I have a responsibility to talk about colorism and to push back when people get it wrong. And so if colorism is a piece or a byproduct of racism, it's structural in that the people who are lighter are at the top of the hierarchy and the people who are darker at the bottom. I do get though, some people, I think because I talk about being biracial and I talk about being light-skinned, other biracial and light-skinned people will follow me and they will say like, well, what do you think about when darker-skinned people or monoracial people tell us that like we're not really black or tell us that like we're acting light skin or any number of things. But well, what if they tease me? And I'm like, I absolutely understand that that happens. And I absolutely understand that that really hurts and can stick with you for a long time. And what you're describing is individual. It's not systemic. And it doesn't exist in the social world outside of those interactions. Because we see that light skinned people have shorter jail sentences, get profiled less. They get... Hollywood roles. We are seen as more romantically desirable because of white supremacy and colorism. Racism within the context of the U.S. is a structure of power built to maintain dominance for white people at the expense of people of color. Colorism is a product or a piece of racism in that the closer you present to whiteness or lightness, the more structural power to oppress you tend to be given. And so we are positioned as the oppressor within colorism, and you cannot be oppressed as the oppressor within that system that we're talking about. So while like two things can be true, that shouldn't happen. And I know it hurts and I know it sucks. And I know it's not colorism. It's bad. It's bigotry. It's discrimination, but it's not structural. So it's not colorism. Yeah, it's very much so on an individual level. I know growing up in Alabama, 
people who were lighter skin, like you said, it seemed that they were you know, favored for many different things. And I rarely saw them face like discrimination for being light skin. They may have faced discrimination for being black, you know, like every other black person, but very rarely like within the black community that I see them facing discrimination. But I often saw people who, if they were like very dark skin, I often saw them getting teased more so and things like that. So definitely when it comes to colorism, it definitely swings towards the person who's darker. Like for sure. I mean, that's what it is. And so I'm glad that you broke that down and described that. But I'm also interesting too, because you've mentioned that you're, you're biracial. I'm very interested in your upbringing because I saw a video that you posted that was really interesting where there was this white woman saying, I'm trying to teach my biracial son or whatever to be raceless or something like that. And you had a really good comeback to that to say, like, that's not going to help them, you know, in the, in the long run, because they, they still are a person of color and they need to understand that. So I'm curious about your upbringing. Did you did your parents instill that like importance that you understood that you were a person of color? Yeah, absolutely. Like right off the jump. I remember my mom would tell me a story of when I was really little. She would say like, she would talk to her friends. Most of my mom's friends are black women. And she would say, I don't know how I can teach my daughter to be black. And all of my mom's black friends were like, you don't have to, we'll do it. Like, you can't, we'll do it. And my dad was always around too, but I'm like, my dad's not a woman. So (laughs) growing up, we were always told that we were black. Like, you're going to check black on the whatever thing you fill out with the boxes you're gonna identify as black and i never questioned that i was like bet cool whatever um we're also from a city where most people are black and mm-hmm. so my community never treated me like i wasn't like they might make like light skin jokes or like mixed <laughs> jokes but they were never mm-hmm. like you're not one of us <laughs> it was always like you're obviously one of us and we'll just tease you a little bit i remember my little brother my mom told him when he filled out the form that he would check black and my brother was like but if I don't check white, then it's like, you don't exist. And now my mom's like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, my, we're, they're having a conversation with my brother about race and how like within they I'm sure they didn't use this language, right? Cause he was a child, but within a structure of white supremacy, white supremacy survives by remaining insular. They don't just let anybody in. And within the context of the U S they certainly don't let black people in. So if you are mixed black and white, no one's ever going to perceive you as white. Not everyone is going to perceive you as black, but most people will. That's kind of always been the lens that we had. As we got older, I remember I remember in middle school, my mom like sitting me down and having conversations and saying like, hey, you're probably going to start like dating soon. Or you're going to like like people. She probably said boys, but people. <laughs> and I want you to be aware of your, she probably didn't use the word privileges, but I want you to be aware of like your hair, your eyes, your skin. Like you have features that many of your friends don't have. And many of the, I mostly dated black boys in middle school. So dated, <laughs> held hands in the hallway. <laughs> so my mom would say, you know, some of the black boys might really focus on those features. And if you're noticing that they are speaking badly about other black girls or like hyping up your lightness or your hair or your eyes, like those are not compliments. Because I I definitely did hear that. And when I was little, I was like, oh, they just think I'm pretty. Like, this is okay. And then as I got older, I was like, no, you hate black women. You you do. And you are otherizing me as you're still understanding that I'm black, but I'm like diluted in a way. Do I think that my identity as a black woman is diluted because I'm biracial? No. Do I think that it is different because different from a darker skin, monoracial black person? Absolutely. 
So all that to say, yes, my parents were always very intentional about talking with us about race. And so when the topic of racelessness comes up, I don't think you can raise any child to be raceless. Like we've seen what happens when we raise white people to be raceless. They grow up thinking that racism doesn't exist or that racism isn't a problem or they they don't have races. It's those other people, those people of color that have races. And my Black family is very proud to be Black. Like we spent a lot of time in our local Baptist church. Like my grandma and grandpa tell the story all the time of how they were the first black couple to get married uh, in the church that they got married in. And I'm like, how did you do it? And my grandma's (laughs) like, I put on my phone voice. And when we showed up and they saw us, it was too late to stop us. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. (laughs) And my dad was the first, I think, is still the only black administrator in his school district. And prior to that, he worked. Yeah. Which like shouldn't be the case. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of odd. Yeah, because I would I wouldn't think he's that old. So like he's not. No, I mean, my dad is uh, forty two. Oh wow, that's interesting. Then yeah, it really shouldn't be the case. But great, good for him. But still, no, that's too young. That's way too young. Fifty two. He's fifty two. <laughs> oh, 52. Yeah. Okay. A little closer to my dad's age. Okay. Yeah. But still, still though, that's interesting that he's the first black administrator for a school district in, in your in your area. That's still kind of interesting that it took that long, but. It's extraordinary to me that that your mom actually set you down and like explained that concept of like skinness to you in relation to relationships, because that's something that I see like really problematic in, in the black community. I saw it all the time growing up where basically like black men like would fetishize, you know, like skinned people for, like you said, all the wrong reasons and in turn treat darker skinned women poorly. And it was something that I saw a lot. And it was something that I, I always felt very uncomfortable whenever I would see it. I was like, come on, guys, this is, this is whack. And so it's like great that you had a mom who basically was able to like explain that to you. And, and a question that I have for you is because you talked about the fact that like being light skinned is not going to get you a whole lot of acceptance in the white world, even if you're biracial. So have you ever encountered someone messaging you on TikTok or any other platform where they're like, where it's like a biracial person who identifies more as white and has some type of like confrontational stance to the things that you're saying when it comes to that? Oh yeah, all the time. I hypothesize that it's actually the same person on different accounts, but... (laughs) (laughs) It's usually the case. (laughs) Yeah, there are people... It's not typically within a black white lens, right? It's not typically people who are saying, I identify as white. That almost never happens. It's usually people saying, I identify strictly as biracial or multiracial, or like I am just as white as I am black. And being a person who researches racial identity, there are plenty of people who feel that way. Usually, that's not a person who is black and white. The most common racial mix to identify as strictly multiracial is white and Asian. Hmm. And that's usually due to like, there's less perceived social distance between white communities and Asian communities. And the racialization of black people is rooted in enslavement, where if you could make more black people, you could enslave more black people. And so they didn't really care how not black you were, as long as you were a little black, you would be enslaved. But Asian immigration happened very differently. And we're not calling enslavement immigration, but Asian immigration was different than African enslavement. (laughs) And so yes, I do sometimes get a black, white, multiracial person commenting on my things. And it's usually like mixed princess, like light skin beauty, (laughs) or whatever. And I don't try to change their minds, right? Because I think that we should let multiracial people identify in the ways that speak to their lived experience. And I will never know what their lived experience is. That's very responsible and, and understandable for sure. 
But to get back to TikTok a little bit, I'm interested how TikTok handles your content because I know some black creators have talked to me about, uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the show, being shadow banned or having certain content if it's about uh, racism or discrimination, like basically being suppressed. Have you noticed any of that? Like, have you ever made a video on TikTok and you're just like, this isn't getting any views, but like everything else around it is? Like, Have you ever encountered that phenomenon? I noticed that when I post anything that uses the word race, racist, black, white, straight, cis, trans, colonialism. <laughs> I'll post it and then I'll try to, I'll go to my profile and I'll try to copy the link and it'll say like, you cannot copy this link. The video is under review. And I'm like, great. Let's see how <laughs> long it's going to take this time. <laughs> and sometimes it takes like 10 minutes and sometimes it takes like six hours. And then when it posts, it shows up as like, if it took six hours for it to go through review it'll say that it was posted six hours ago. And I'm like, you're annoying because now it looks like everyone hates it because it's gotten two views in six hours. And so then the engagement tends to be really low. And I'm like, where is everyone? Or people will straight up comment on the stuff that they do see and say like, I haven't seen you on my For You page in weeks. And I'll notice if I posted something that's made people upset, like if I've talked about like Katanji Brown Jackson, or if I've talked about like the Southern strategy, I'll get people who are like clearly mad about it. And then my videos take longer to post, or I'm in a post ban, or I'm in a comment ban, wow. or like I'll post a pinned comment under my video and that just won't show up for other people or like some number of things. And I've seen, of course, I'm sure that you have two other creators of color or other like queer creators who get their content suppressed because TikTok is not, I imagine, in the business of making people angry. And so they try to appease everyone. Yeah. But when you're trying to appease people who want liberation and people who want oppression it doesn't really work in the ways yeah. that we might want democracy to work i haven't ever gotten like locked out of my tiktok mm -hmm. fingers crossed yeah i haven't been banned for longer than like a day or a few hours i have gotten a couple community guidelines and almost all of them guidelines violations and almost all of them I've been able to appeal. One of them I couldn't because I featured a clip of Joe Rogan where he did say the N-word even though I tried to bleep it out. So oh, that yeah. was like, that's fair. Yeah. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. We'll give you that. We'll give them that one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, otherwise, I definitely can tell a difference, but I'm definitely seeing other creators experience it more. But I also think that it might be the way that I look, the way that I speak, that people are less aggressive towards my content. And... I don't typically do the like this you like content where I'm like attacking people, which is like, I, I don't think that's an unfair way to make content. It's just like not my thing. And so I feel like people don't like hunt me down in the same way. I've never had a situation where I couldn't post for a while, but I have like had community guideline violations. And then one time my account was like literally like deleted for like a few days and it was kind of scary. I was like, is this permanent? Like, yeah. but it was an accident. It was an accident, but uh, they didn't do it on purpose. Something weird technical happened, but it was very scary. I was like, oh God, this is, this is it. Like, I'm, how'd you I'm get gone. it back? Uh, well, it's interesting to get it back. I went on Twitter and I had a friend who's like really big on TikTok on Twitter. And he was tweeting that he was having some problems uploading things. So I like added him and said, you know, hey, like my account just literally got removed for no reason. And then he actually added someone who's like a communications director for TikTok. And I feel like that had something to do with the account like magically being restored in like the next few hours after that. But yeah, I don't know what would have happened if I hadn't done that because it was like 
it was it was a technical issue but that was like when ukraine was first happening and i think mm-hmm. i had posted some stuff about it and they were being weird about that kind of stuff so yeah i was able to get it reversed so what is like the thing that you would change the most about tiktok it could be like a technical thing it could be just like a community thing like what's something about the app that you just dislike that you would that you would change if you had the power to do so i think i would have more of a FAQ or like a like virtual agent kind of option because I'll find that when I reach out with a problem they just don't respond and like sometimes it just fixes itself but sometimes it doesn't or like when I'll reach out and be like hi can I please be verified and they ignore me and I'm like hi there are four fake profiles of me right now can I please be verified and they're like Oh, or I'll wow. report them and they'll be like, we're under investigation. I was like, you've been under investigation of this fake me for six months. Like, what are we doing? Yeah, I'm having the exact same issue right now. <laughs> it's insane. It's annoying because like it is a job in some ways. Like it does become like a, a source of revenue. Yeah. And so I want to be able to like protect myself. Hang on. There's like not really a way to do that. Anything else that I think I would like would be an infringement of the First Amendment, but TikTok is not the government. (laughs) I think I would like more, more of a lens on hate speech. Yeah. Because some people think like, as long as you don't say a slur, it's not hate speech. But if, if you're pontificating on whether or not certain people deserve freedom and rights, then like, I think that incites violence that gets carried out in the real world. And I think that there should be more of a focus on that like i say the word white supremacy in a tiktok video and it gets reviewed for six hours but somebody can say like do queer black people deserve to buy houses in this neighborhood i'm just asking questions and like that's okay it's insane yeah it's wild you make a really good point when you talk about the fact that hate speech is just something that they don't seem to have a good lens for and they don't have a good discernment for because i've had people put active hate speech in my comments and like i'll report it and they're like ah that's not hate speech and i'm like they they literally just invoked the, like the genocidal like thought and because they don't say a certain word they don't like specify the group then TikTok's like ah no that's that's just somebody's opinion and I'm like okay so yeah it it is it is weird uh, that they're like that so real quick uh, you talked a little bit earlier about brands reaching out to you I always like to talk to people about monetization because that's like the big thing everybody who wants to you know become a popular TikTok creator I was like well how do I make money with it and how do I monetize so are there any ways that you've been able to monetize your page yeah so I'm in the creator fund cool. which. I mean, it doesn't really pay that much. But (laughs) if I look at my app, I think over the past almost year of like consistently creating content, I've got 14.7 million likes and like 370,000 followers. And in the creator fund, I've made almost like 1,300, which sounds really great, but that took months to make and like hours and hours and hours of content creation. But the, the, faster way to monetize TikTok is through brand deals. So I try to be really intentional about which brands I work with. Most of the time, the brands that I work with are like sociopolitical in nature. Makes sense. And I won't agree to it if it's something that I wouldn't say myself. For sure. But it is helpful because they like give you information and then you get to learn about it and explore it and then say yes or no. And then sometimes it's like, like a hair care brand will reach out and I'm like, I talk about hair sometimes. I think that's very important to talk about. And then sometimes I'll get contacted by people who are like politically conservative and they'll say like, we've noticed that there aren't any Republicans on your website. And like, here are a few that we think you should learn more about. Do you want to talk about it with your followers? And I'm like, 
No, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> There's some Democrats I don't agree with. I certainly don't agree with the Republicans. So no, thank you. So I always like to ask this question at the very end. It's kind of a double question. What do you want your followers to get from your TikTok the most? And what do you want to get out of the TikTok app the most? What I'd want my followers to get is that many of us want to live in a world that is just and that is fair and that is meritocratic, where the people who are best prepared do well, the people who are smartest do well, the people who are good get treated how they deserve to be treated. And the fact that racism and white supremacy and heterosexism and transphobia and colonialism and ableism and classism all exist are in direct contradiction to that notion of a just and fair world. We've never lived in that world, particularly within the context of the US, but we can. But it is easier within the political imagination to hearken back to a world that we've already seen because it's comfortable to know that we can do it and we have done it. And it is scarier and a bit more amorphous to radically reimagine our reality into something that we haven't ever lived in. So I'm hoping that through my content, people can find a point of view that can help them better picture that radically reimagined reality. And they can question their biases a little bit more. And I think if we all just kind of took a step back and acknowledge that we don't know everything and we're not perfect and that's okay and that we can be receptive to new information and critique, we'll live in a more understanding world where it's okay to get things wrong as long as we're trying. And then I think what I want out of TikTok is I've, I've really been enjoying like finding other people who do the things that I do and like becoming mutuals with them like you and with like so many other people on TikTok, which has been like so cool. Like people on TikTok are so smart and so creative and just like so funny and engaging. It's been amazing. And it would be nice to be able to do this work in a way that doesn't just stay on TikTok, that like goes out into the broader world and becomes more accessible in whatever ways that looks like. Well, like I said, you are doing a great job on TikTok, educating people about all of these really complicated issues. And you do it in an entertaining way, which is so difficult to do. So really keep up the good work. Uh, do you want to give us like your handles for Instagram, TikTok for everybody so they can follow you in case they don't already? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so my handle on all social media is Victoria Alexander. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A. And then Alexander is A-L-X-N-D-R. Well, Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation and I look forward to just seeing your growth on TikTok and just getting more education from all of your great videos. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Corey. Join me next week as I sit down with Jake Trumper, who is actually very similar to me as he is also known for his satirical history videos on TikTok. He's a radio talk show host and an extremely talented content creator who brings history to life through his hilarious yet informative TikToks. Grant as a person, you could really tell, even though they called him Grant the Butcher when he was a general, you could tell every life that was lost stuck with him. He didn't yeah. want to do it. He just knew the tactic that was working. Thank you for listening. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, and I'll see you all next week.